Peace, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Behold Pop Culture, the show where we take a look at some prominent people, figures, and events from pop culture today and in the past and try and see what lessons we could take away from them. Today is Saturday, May the 1st, and as many people are trying to get it, trying to make it to the finish line, trying to complete their semester, trying to complete final projects for jobs as we approach the summer in which the virus is supposed to be going down, the summer in which things are supposed to return to some semblance of normalcy. All I can say is good luck, and I'll continue to handle things on my side as we'll begin with the sports section. As in the NBA, we are quickly approaching the playoffs. Teams are moving and shifting position for who's going to have what home court advantage or the lack thereof. The Phoenix Suns have currently clinched their spot for the playoffs and just defeated the Utah Jazz to claim the number one record in the NBA and currently have home court advantage over every team. Chris Paul continues to put up an MVP-level campaign as he has proven to be the glue for an already good team, an already great coach that just needed that extra push to take them over the edge. As their undefeated performance in the bubble has now carried over to putting the franchise in a position that it has never been before. The Suns have not looked this great since, dare I say, the Charles Barkley days. And it's eerily reminiscent on the Chris Paul side of things of Steve Nash winning his two MVPs because of how great his distribution and leadership was for his team. But while I don't believe that the reporters will want to give it to Chris Paul, mainly because of how offensively gifted the two big men in the race have been, Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid, it has sure given NBA fans a great story to follow along with. Likewise, the Boston Celtics, who many had counted out, they had faced potentially the most impediments of every team in the NBA whether it was injuries or Jason Tatum catching the virus and now having to use an inhaler before every game. The team overall just looked very beat up throughout this whole season. But as of recent, things have been looking up. Kemba Walker and Jalen Brown are getting healthier and coming back to their usual all-star level forms. And Jason Tatum quietly, because the Celtics haven't garnered as much attention, has been averaging around 30 points over the last couple of weeks. And that was capped off with a 60-point performance over this weekend. One that not only was a great scoring effort, a historical one at that as he tied Larry Bird's record for the Celtics, but it was on the back of leading the third-greatest comeback in NBA history, as the Celtics were down by more than 30 points in this game, and they needed every single bucket by Tatum to bring them back, leading them into an overtime in which Tatum proved that he's one of the best scorers undeniably in the NBA today. Tatum's scoring prowess has been so impressive 
that he's been drawing a lot of Tracy McGrady comparisons. Every team like the Celtics is trying to lock in and make their fair case for winning the NBA championship this year. For some teams like the Washington Wizards, that entails Westbrook having another triple-double average season, just absolutely unbelievable stuff for the point guard position, and them just barely trying to edge their way into the play-in tournament. Meanwhile, for the Lakers, this means just getting your two best players back healthy. As Anthony Davis did return this week, but did not show anything too crazy, and unfortunately his highlight for the week was getting dunked on twice in a game. Similarly, LeBron just made his return and had some questionable plays, most notably one in which at the end of the game while the team was down two, he opted to take a deep contested three with five seconds on the clock rather than trying to drive or create a better shot. And in one of the most unexpected responses, LeBron would claim that he is not sure if he will ever be able to get back to 100% health again in his career. An unfortunate statement to say the least, and I'll use that statement to say if you at all are a fan of LeBron and what he does, it might be worth checking out his playoff run this year because I'm not sure how much more of playoff Braun we'll get to see. But as we inch closer and closer now, two weeks away from the NBA playoffs, the NFL made its grand return into the news as the draft took place this weekend. And while there's plenty of narratives and stories from teams trading upwards and backwards, teams making ridiculous picks, or even some steals into the second and third rounds of the draft, the main story that is worth reporting on is the story of the quarterbacks. As in rare fashion, this year we had five prospects that were being talked about potentially going in the first 10 picks of the draft. Luckily, this did not happen because statistically speaking, it is very rare for that to work out. Instead, teams would opt to take a more cautious approach. Instead, there were only three. Trevor Lawrence, the shoe-in lock for the first pick in the draft, has joined the Jacksonville Jaguars. Zach Wilson, a surprise riser in the offseason, went to the New York Jets. Trey Lance, who was a part of the most nerve-wracking pick for the 49ers fan base has joined them as many feared they would reach for the other quarterback who's more known for his IQ and Mac Jones. The quarterback who slid the most in Justin Fields was acquired through a trade-up by the Chicago Bears, so a passionate fan base gets a very talented quarterback to join their team and potentially be their leader of the future. And lastly, Mac Jones, the most controversial player of the bunch, who was going anywhere from the top five picks to the second round, would be acquired in the middle by the New England Patriots, who many thought would have to trade up to acquire him. So now the Patriots have a competition between 
Cam Newton, the former MVP, and Mac Jones to see who will lead the team to success. With regards to the plethora of other picks, a lot remains to be seen as we get closer to the NFL season. As for some reason, it seems like this was a fairly talented draft, one that could be talked about for a long time depending on how these players perform going into the season. But just for statistics sakes, rarely have we seen even three quarterbacks come out and be good out of a draft. And with the only other news of note being Aaron Rodgers potentially demanding a trade out of Green Bay, we can proceed on to the music section of the podcast, where the major release that took place this week was DJ Khaled's new album, Khaled Khaled. An album that doesn't necessarily fall under the guise of heavily anticipated, but was filled with matchups and artists coming together that should demand some level of attention and anticipation. From Jay-Z and Nas collaborating to Little Baby and Little Dirk, there was a roster on this album, as there is with every DJ Khaled album, that seems to be worth most people's time, even if you aren't a DJ Khaled fan. But as a music fan in general, I had to give attention to this album as I have with his prior projects, with the most notable one being Major Key, where with a similar roster of some of the hottest artists out, he was able to produce a very good project. Unfortunately, on this new album, I was quite disappointed. At this point, DJ Khaled has, in my opinion, missed on the past three projects in a row. As the hype builds up, the anticipation builds up, and he claims that he creates projects that need to be played on the radio, and in his mind, he believes that he's more artistic than a lot of his counterparts. Unfortunately, what ends up resulting is we don't know how much impact he's actually having in the studio, and it comes across as if he can get two or three people in the room together but he hasn't necessarily displayed the ability to turn that into a great song, let alone one that I would want to be playing on repeat. A lot of the times, the matchups themselves precede the actual quality of the songs, and this case was no different, as there was nearly no notable tracks on this project at all. I'm excluding the Drake songs, Popstar and Grease, that had released already months before. With all credit due to the impact and presence alone that DJ Khaled has had throughout music for a very long period of time, unfortunately, his credibility with regards to making good music has been on the decline, as has his position in popular culture ever since he was a motivational speaker of sorts, preaching about health, wealth, and the keys to success in life. Unfortunately, though he has ran with the theme of major key and everything that comes along with it, his actual quality output has not tagged along. So this new album, Khaled Khaled, I cannot personally recommend it as a quality project. But if you're interested with the long roster of notable names in music, it's worth checking out to see what a song with Jay-Z and Nas sounded like. A Boogie, Puff, Big Sean, the the list is long, but unfortunately the quality isn't.
Meanwhile, what I believe to be the best project to come out of the weekend is likely one that won't garner much pop culture attention. The main reason that I believe it has earned a spot on this show is because the artist earned himself a spot on Tiny Desk, and this artist also had one of the most popular songs over the last 10 years. And this is the artist Drom, most notably known for his song with Little Yachty called Broccoli, that was a major hit while it was out. Though I must admit, aside from that, I didn't have much of a reason to check out his music, nor did I have any interest in him outside of his art. But in this past weekend, I was able to see that he released a new album by what seems to be a change in his name. This new album that is self-titled Shelly FKA Drum, named after what seems to be his new nickname, is an amazing project. It is great to the point where I have to highlight the entire album. This is an R&B album in which Drum and artists who... I didn't consider to be one of the more talented members of the R&B genre, has really found his voice and has something special with this project. My favorite songs off of it are All Pride Aside and Cooking with Grease, and I don't want to give the full breakdown as I haven't had more than a couple of days to listen to it, but must I say this is one, this might be the best R&B album out this year. This project is amazing. I had no issues with any of the songs. The features were great from Summer Walker to Erica Badu. You could feel the soul on every single track. So I wanted to give credit where credit is due for an unexpectedly great project coming out of drama. And if you're at all a fan of R&B, I highly recommend this. The only other major releases were singles from 21 Savage releasing a song called Spiral for the new Saw movie. That was a quality song, but more of the same from 21 Savage. And Billie Eilish, who is leading up to her new album release, dropped her first single, Your Power, which I thought was a great lead-up going into the project. And the only other thing I wanted to double back on is I got a full week to listen to the Moneybag Yo album, and I'm giving him a lot of credit. That was a great trap project. And he might be an under-the-radar artist at this point with regards to looking at how good of an artist he is in trap. Moneybag Yo is not someone who's often put in the limelight. He has very few of what I deem to be true hits with regards to charting and things of that nature, but a very solid project, one that, in addition to the new Drum album, I could see coming up towards the end of the year as I put together my top 10 albums that release. So credit to Moneybag Yo, his team, and this new project that came out as it seems that he paid a lot of well attention to making sure that he released good music. And with that being said, we can proceed on to the film section of the podcast where firstly, before going into what will be the main topic, I wanted to just touch on Demon Slayer a new movie, an anime follow-up after the popular show Demon Slayer, a show about a character whose sister is a demon, and he goes on an adventure to try and change that, to try and revert her back to human form. It's one of the most popular animes at the moment, has a large fan base, 
And the reason that it is worth reporting on is because similar to King Kong being worth reporting for its notable performance in the box office amidst the concerns that came with the pandemic and being able to even get people into movie theaters, this new Demon Slayer became the highest grossing film ever to release in Japan. Yes, that means across both animated and actual movies in Japan, this topped them all. As this new film, Demon Slayer Mugen Train, was a visual masterpiece and a lesson in great storytelling as they condensed an arc of the written manga version of the show and were able to put together the most important pieces into a roller coaster ride of emotion, an animation masterpiece, a voice acting masterclass, and again, one of the highest grossing movies of this year, as well as the highest grossing movie in Japan. So I highly recommend if you have any interest in anime, let alone if you're actually a fan of the Demon Slayer show, finding a way to see this movie is worth checking out, even after it leaves the movie theaters and is on one of these streaming services. Unfortunately for Demon Slayer, that was not the biggest news of the week with regards to animated content. As the show Invincible that I recently shed light on for being a very high quality project being worked on, stole the show. This is a show that somewhat came up out of the blue, at least for myself. As I didn't see much hype behind this release, I didn't tap into any of the actual fans of the comic book who may have been very excited for this coming out. But in its release, most anybody who's seen it can at least feel a little sense that this was going to be a classic show. Little did we know that this could be one of the greatest seasons of animated television ever to be put out. Whether you want to credit it for having an all-star cast of voice actors, whether you want to credit it for the actual animation standing out, being well done and different in that, or even the story itself that people have been raving over, despite the fact that many people who watch the comic book already know the result of what will take place in the show. As someone that had absolutely no familiarity with the comic book and was coming in with all types of theories and thoughts about what I thought the show would or would not be, the season finale that just released is one of the greatest season finales I've ever seen of an animated show. It could even challenge for one of the greatest season finales of all time at that. Now, I must put a giant spoiler alert here, as you should not at all proceed if you have not seen the show, unless you have no intentions of seeing it yourself. But with that spoiler alert in place, I have to report on this. The show throughout the entire season had the overarching theme of this character named Omni-Man who killed all of these superheroes in the first episode but proceeded to be the hero of the world, the greatest hero, the strongest hero, and was trying to maintain that image as the government, as his wife wondered why he would be the man behind such an action. 
They hid it from the public. They hid it from his actual son as detectives and all types of people attempted to uncover the reason why Omni-Man would do this. And through the very end, there was not a single clue as to why he did it. All we knew was that Omni-Man appeared to be a villain for killing these superheroes and was trying to get away with it as if nothing happened. But leading into the season finale, the penultimate episode showed Omni-Man going to full-out war with the government as he would go to actually kill them and they unleashed everything they had to try and prevent that from happening. His wife found out and believed that he was a murderer and his son was pretty much the only one who was clueless on what had taken place. Instead, what we would see in the end of the penultimate episode was Omni-Man facing his son after killing one of those heroes once again with no remorse. So opening the season finale, we see his son Mark staring him in his eyes and going to attack him, hoping, begging him that this was because someone was controlling his mind. He exclaimed, Father, you must be being controlled by someone. There's no way you did this by your own mind, by your own hands. An Omni-Man would look at him with a straight face and say, it definitely was my decision to make. And he proceeded to explain that his people, his bloodline and the blood that ran in Mark as well, was one of a people who would live for many centuries. One of a people who would see many generations turn over and over and over. And because of that, his people formed what appeared to be a perfect race. They eliminated all of the weaker people that existed in their civilization, nearly half the population, and intended to conquer the world because they believed that they were perfect and were the best equipped to rule over everyone, to enslave every other planet. So him, like his counterparts, was deemed with controlling Earth, destroying its greatest warriors and forcing them to bow down to his people. It was a true display of emotionlessness as he would call his wife more of a pet to him. He would call every human's life pretty much worthless and would tell his son that he needed to disregard the lives of all the people he grew up with that he knew because they meant absolutely nothing and that he instead should join alongside him in conquering worlds. It was an absolute jaw-dropping experience as Mark refused to accept his dad's philosophy. He tried to fight him even though he had no chance. Omni-Man was just beating him and beating him almost to death. And in the process, Omni-Man would ruthlessly kill random humans trying to convince Mark that their lives meant little to nothing. But Mark would continue to fight on and struggle and continue trying to convince his father that he was wrong, that Mark himself is still part human and that his father did love his wife, that his father did love his son who was partially human. And as his father tried to beat the sense into him, almost killing his son, he asked him, why Mark? 
Why do you care for these people that won't even be here in a couple hundred years? These generations that will have no reason to be cared about. What are you going to do when you're stuck here living with completely new people that you've never met before? You'll have nothing. Your mother will be gone. Your friends will be gone. You'll have absolutely nothing. And Mark with barely any strength in his body, on the verge of passing out, looked at his father and said, I'll still have you, Dad. And it struck Omni-Man's heart to the core as he recalled looking at his young son, Mark, before he had his powers, recalled seeing his wife and her teaching him how to feel the emotions that humans felt, how to love and how to appreciate the value in the many weaknesses that humans have. And in this moment that Omni-Man's heart was touched to the core, apparently, he stormed off. And the rest of the episode was characters trying to cope with what had taken place. And it appears that Omni-Man might just be on a mission to turn on his people. All because he fell in love with the human and has endless love for his son. So I was more than amazed by this story that is far different from your average superhero tale. And it's a true lesson in perspective. As Omni-Man's people were not necessarily wrong in their philosophy, but it was not in the best interest of humans. His people truly do believe that they can be the best thing for all of these civilizations, that a lot of these civilizations, as Earth, at least in the show, seems to be, are on their ways to destroying themselves, while instead this quote-unquote perfect race could save them. While humans and many of these other races would rather live with their mistakes, enjoy their lives in its moments of helplessness, it is simply chalked up as a part of the human experience. So it really was a true storytelling masterclass as you see how we usually get the perspective of superheroes being mostly in the right, being the ones who are able to decide how is the best way to go about living. But in this story, we have Invincible, who is anything but that, as it seemed in every episode, he's beaten to a pulp And the true hero, Omni-Man, who saved so many people throughout his career, thought he was doing the right thing again. But he was challenged in his philosophy, not because what he was doing was necessarily wrong, but because it would cost lives that even if he didn't value, were valuable to those who loved those people. But as I continue to digest that, season two and three of this show was confirmed And I would not be doing my due diligence if I did not recommend any hero fans to check out this show because it is quite simply amazing. But with that being said, that is the end of this episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. I appreciate you taking out your time. Please let me know if there's any ways you believe I can improve the show and just make it a better experience for you. I truly am thankful for you taking out the time to learn about what is going on in popular culture. One of the things that unite us the most. 
and I'll keep my finger on the pulse and talk to you next week. This is Behold Pop Culture.